I'm excited for tonight. We are going to talk through one of um, maybe the most important passages, um, one of the most the deep and intense passages in all of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. So if you have your Bible tonight, um, or if you have your smartphone, if you could turn uh, with me to Isaiah 53. As you're turning there, uh, I want to read um, an, uh, an excerpt from an article from Ephraim Goldstein. He published this in 2018. Ephraim is an ethnically Jewish believer in Christ. Here's what he says. Leah is a 25-year-old Jewish woman who is searching for answers to her spiritual questions. When faced with the question, was Jesus who he claimed to be, she wanted the answer to be no. Leah confessed, I'm starting to see that Jesus is the Messiah, but if I accept it, I'm also rejecting my father who did not believe in Jesus. I loved him more than anyone else in the world. I just can't do it. When she was challenged to read Isaiah 53, Leah found her dad's old faded Tanakh. That's the Jewish name for the Old Testament. Opening it to the passage in question, Isaiah 53, she made two astounding discoveries. First, the passage really did sound like it was describing Jesus. And second, her father had circled the entire chapter. And in the margin, he had written... Messianic prophecy, Yeshua is Messiah. Absolutely. And Leah just had to ask, who's Yeshua? When she understood that Yeshua is the Jewish way to say Jesus, it dawned on her. It was a convincing passage indeed, and even her father had not been able to dismiss it. Within two weeks, she acknowledged that Jesus fit the description of the suffering servant. Leah, like many other Jewish people, have read Isaiah 53 and have embraced Christ. This is an incredible text that was written some 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, but it paints such a clear picture of the crucifixion, you and I would think it was written after the fact, which is just another reason why God's Word is inspired and inerrant, defying even the laws of logic and driving us to our knees. So as you already can tell, tonight's not a normal night. I'm joined uh, tonight by my friend, Dr. Jim Messerly. Everyone say hi, Jim. Hi, Jim. Uh, Jim is a physician. How long have you been practicing? Can I, I keep, ask that question? I keep practicing until I try to get it right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, graduated from medical school in 1983 with my wife, Susan. So it's been a, it's a couple of years. Like decades. <laughs> 27 and a half at bone and joint. Okay, good. Well, one of my favorite things about Jim is that uh, he really likes dad jokes, and you already heard one. So we're in for a treat tonight. So I'm, I'm going to start just by talking us through Isaiah 53. I want to walk us through verse by verse. It's going to be pretty brief, but I want us to get a lay of the land on this passage together, maybe to understand some things that we didn't understand. And then what Jim's going to do um, is... He's going to talk us through uh, the medical background of what happened to Jesus when he suffered and died on the cross. Uh, tonight's not an easy message. Um, it's heavy. Um, but I can't think of a better time for our talk tonight as we look ahead Amen. to Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, all coming up within the next couple days. 
So our goal tonight is to set our gaze, our focus on what Christ did for us on the cross. Um, and I'm excited to hear what Jim has to say. So I, I just want to start by looking at Isaiah 53. So why don't you look there with me? You're going to want a finger in the text because um, I'm just going to make some comments as we go. This text is all about substitutionary atonement. That's a big theological word that is actually quite simple to understand. Substitute in our place. Jesus did not just die in our place. He lived in our place, living the life that we never could have dreamt of living, a perfect life and thought, attitude, and action. He died in our place, and he was resurrected in our place. And then atonement just means payment, that Jesus took our place on the cross, paying for our sin, the penalty that we deserved. Look at verse 1. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Arm of the Lord is just a phrase for God's power. Then we start talking about Jesus in verse 2. For he, Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. In other words, Jesus lived a very normal life. He was just a, a normal kid growing up in Israel in Nazareth. But then the tone changes in the second half of verse 2. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Take a moment and imagine what it would have been like to see Jesus before Pontius Pilate, beaten and bloody with the crown of thorns in his head. He was robbed of his dignity, certainly no beauty that we should desire him. Look at verse 3. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, also translated pains, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It's almost as if Isaiah paints a picture of a good physician who enters into the pain of their patients and empathizes along with their pain. But Jesus takes the empathy a step farther. He doesn't just enter into the pain metaphorically or spiritually. Jesus entered into the pain physically, enduring the pain of the cross on our behalf, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. If we see blood and gore, naturally, for most of us, our reaction is to turn away, isn't it? That would have been our reaction seeing Jesus on Good Friday. Verse 4, surely, but in fact, he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Really, it's the consequence of our sin. Yet the onlookers esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It was the sin of the onlookers that Isaiah is talking about that they didn't understand redemption. They just thought he was rejected by God. Verse 5, it's hard to fathom a, a clear picture of crucifixion. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, literally stripes, we are healed. That third line's interesting. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Luther translated it the following way. It's helpful. Punishment was laid on Christ so that we can have peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Isaiah is saying that we have no hope for rescue. All of us are like dumb sheep who've turned away, that we're sinners both by nature and by choice, alienating ourselves from God. But the Lord has laid on Jesus, on him the iniquity of us all. That redemption is a gift, that we can never dream of earning the gift that was given to us by the cross, that the Father took our sin and placed it on Christ. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Can you imagine being unjustly accused for something that you never did? If that was you or me, and then being beaten bloody for it, don't you think we defend ourselves? Don't you think we cry out and say, I didn't do it. I just want to go on record. Say, it wasn't me. I'm innocent. But that wasn't Jesus. He didn't open his mouth once. And then Isaiah connects Jesus' sacrifice to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament where lamb after lamb, sheep after sheep was sacrificed to atone temporarily for the sin of the people because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice, the perfect lamb, sacrifice for the sin of the world. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. You notice the word cut off? It's a reference to the moment on the cross when Jesus' relationship with the Father mm. was severed. When for the first time in eternity past, that their relationship was broken. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a divide in their relationship because the Father took our sin and put it on the Son. But think about the reference to this generation, his generation, the people that witnessed the cross. They saw the greatest injustice of all time occur right in front of them, and they knew it. They knew he was innocent. This was the same crowd that just days earlier was saying, Hosanna, save us, be our king. And then they cry out, crucify. They knew he was innocent, yet they did nothing to stop it. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. He was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a wealthy man. Although he'd done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Again, a reference to Jesus being perfect in thought and attitude and action. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. Verse 10, theologically packed verse. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Maybe some people think that the cross was just an accident, a divine whoops. But that wasn't the case. The Father designed redemption. The Father willed the Son to go to the cross and pay for sin. It was not an accident. It was the plan from the fullness of time for the Son to be offered for the sin of all. When a soul makes an offering for guilt, it's actually literally translated a, a trespass offering. That if you went to the Old Testament and read about a trespass offering, the blood was scattered across the entire altar. Isn't that what happened when Jesus was beaten? 
when he went to the cross. His blood was scattered. It was another connection to the Old Testament sacrifices. Yet he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. A nod to the resurrection. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. When Jesus died, he said, to tell us die, it is finished. The wrath of God was satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, he shall take their guilt on himself. That when Jesus went to the cross, he took the weight of your sin and my sin on himself. He's the Savior. He's the justifier. That when we trust in Christ by faith, the Father declares us to be righteous. We get Jesus' resume, and he took our resume and paid for our sin on the cross. He took my guilt and your guilt on himself. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Did you catch the, the battle imagery? Divide him a portion with the many, divide the spoil with the strong. See what Isaiah is saying? that Jesus shares the spoil of his victory with us. But often, if someone's going to win a battle, you win bluntly by killing, don't you? But not Jesus. Jesus won the battle by offering himself, by being killed, and then conquering death and rising from the dead. And he shares the spoil of his victory with us, new life and forgiveness, and reconciliation. Jesus won by overcoming death itself. He bore the sin of many, and now he makes intercession for the transgressors. This has to be the most incredible picture of Christ from the mm -hmm. whole Old Testament. Um, and this helps set the stage for us as we consider a little bit of the medical background. Um, so at this point, Jim, I'm going to turn it over to you okay. um, as you uh, share the medical background of the crucifixion. Okay. Well, thank you. And my goodness, what a powerful review that is. And uh, that's probably we should go to breakout right now and just uh, read it again. Uh, you do a great job, uh, Pastor Sam, and uh, just great to hear. All right. Well, it is a PowerPoint presentation, and um, it is um, basically going to be a, well, oh, that's right. We, we have a couple things to kind of smile about a little bit here, and that is Here's my orthopedic uh, cartoon, his sore knee, huh? He says to the gingerbread man, have you tried icing it? <laughs> all right, all right, how about the next one? I'm, I'm not the doctor who brings the cards. I am not the cardiologist, but this guy is. He's the cardiologist, and again, Sam knows... Uh, uh, two years of suffering in Sunday school class, uh, especially like uh, the nurse that comes up to the doctor and says, doctor, there's a patient in the waiting room who says he's invisible. And the doctor says, tell him I can't see him. <laughs> okay. Jim, that one wasn't on the screen. <laughs> I know, but it's, I can't. Uh, so now that we've got the laughing out of the way, we're going to get a little bit more serious here. And uh, this is a serious passage, isn't it? And this is an article in JAMA, 
This was from JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. You, I mean, you've heard it. You know, they talk about the Journal of the Medical, uh, American Medical Association announced today a study that's, that says this. And this was in March of 1986. I remember coming home and, and this, the JAMA magazine was on our apartment uh, when we were living in um, Steelacum, Washington. Susan was doing her residency there. I was working at the sports medicine clinic in Seattle. And I said, oh my goodness, JAMA has this article. Fascinating. You want to hear what the lead article is uh, from March 14th? Rate adaptive atrial pacing for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, the rapid HF randomized clinical trial. So that's a little, this is a little different. So that's then a bigger rating, Jim. We, we are. <laughs> well, I don't even know what you just, what did you just say? The, the okay. preserved ejection fractions for us people with uh, heart stuff. So anyway, so you say, okay, why was this written? And we'll get to that in just a minute. But now I want you to just kind of think of this for a moment. Just think with me. What was the most incredible event in the Old Testament that showed the power of God? What, what would be this, that sentinel event that the nation of Israel would... Yeah, it, would, it was the Exodus, right? That was a picture of God saving his people's salvation for the nation of Israel, you know out of Egypt. And in Deuteronomy 6, 12, and 13, it says, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him only you serve. Okay? Take, uh, you know, take warning lest you forget. Don't forget. And they were supposed to keep remembering that, Right? And in Deuteronomy 6, just earlier is the Shema, where they talk about, because this is Deuteronomy 6, what's in Deuteronomy 5 that's also in Exodus 20? Ten Commandments, right? Okay. And in the, before this passage, it's talking about, remember the law, Moses is saying. Don't forget the law, the commands God has given you. Talk about them when you sit down. Talk about them when you stand up. Talk about them when you lie down. Talk about them when you're walking up and down the road. That's almost all the time, sit down, standing up, you know, talk about it, and don't forget, all right? Now let's shift to the New Testament, okay? What's the sentinel event, the greatest event, we just talked about it, of God's saving power in the New Testament? The crucifixion, right? And so what did we just celebrate yesterday? Communion. What's the purpose of communion. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. This, is, this bread is my body. Take, given for you. Um, do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup. And this is the blood of the new covenant given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget. Okay? And then he said, Every time you eat this bread and drink this wine, you are proclaiming the Lord's death. So don't forget it. So we are going to take a real close look at it, and you might think this is too close of a look and too much, too much medical detail. And if it does get too much for you and you need to step out, I will not be offended because anatomically it's, it's rugged, okay? 
But the purpose is, don't forget. The Catholic Church, Susan grew up in the Catholic Church. How often does the Catholic Church have communion? Every day. So you kind of say, there, and we do it once a month, and that's great. We remember it, but the Catholic Church does it every day to their, a little bit to their credit that they're not going to forget. So just interesting, don't forget. So, so let's take a look at this article a little bit more as we remember what Jesus did for us. Here's, here's the author. Dr. Edwards is a pathologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Mayo Clinic is pretty well known for its medic, medical um, care. Um, frequently, if there's um, a pathologist here that's struggling with, is this cancer or is this not, looking at the microscope, they will send those, that tissue to Mayo Clinic for kind of a second opinion on that. Then this is uh, Floyd Homer. He's, the, uh, he's a medical illustrator with the Mayo Clinic. And then Wesley Gable is a pastor then at the Methodist Church. So here's the abstract. We're going to find out why this was written. Jesus of Nazareth underwent Jewish and Roman trials, was flogged, and was sentenced to death by crucifixion. The scourging produced deep, stripe-like lacerations and appreciable blood loss, and it probably set the stage for hypovolemic shock. Hypo is low volume, so it was low volume shock, as evidenced by the fact that Jesus was too weakened to carry the crossbar, the patibulum, to Golgotha. At the site of the crucifixion, his wrists were nailed to the patibulum, and after the patibulum was lifted up onto the upright stipes, his feet were nailed to the stipes. The major pathophysiologic effect of crucifixion was an interference with normal respirations or normal breathing. Accordingly, death resulted primarily from hypovolemic shock and exhaustion asphyxia, and that's the breathing part of things. Jesus' death was ensured by the thrust of a soldier's spear into his side. Modern medical Interpretation of the historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead when taken down from the cross. Okay? They're going to a lot of trouble to say Jesus was dead. I think we all agree that Jesus was dead, but he is set on proving that Jesus was dead. And one of the reasons why, well, I'm sorry, I'll hit the right one here, is this crazy theory called the swoon theory. Swoon theory is a theory that Jesus never really died on the cross. He was crucified, came very close to death. It, it further states that he was taken down from the cross and laid in a tomb. And after three days or two days, the coolness of the tomb revived him. And he managed to roll away the stone, come out of the tomb, appear to the disciples, making them think he had risen from the dead. Oh, boy, you know. <laughs> And that's, you know, I kind of think of evolution with this molecular soup somehow becoming the human eye over billions and billions of years, and I have a hard time accepting that one, too. I just have a hard time, you know, imagining that someone who is oh. killed by crucifixion, even if they somehow survive, pushing away the stone and then convincing anyone that they rose the from guards, the dead. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it, yeah, I, I have a hard time with this one. Yeah, it is. But, but that was his purpose, and interesting in a very wish respected medical journal. It was published. So, so here's his preface, and this, this, is, this is 
good stuff because, you know, he's doing this medically, but bringing in kind of the reliability of Scripture and, what, and the disciples' uh, account. And he says, when taken in concert, certain facts, the extensive and early testimony of both Christian proponents and opponents, and the u- universal acceptance of Jesus as a true historical figure, the ethic of the gospel writers, and the shortness of time interval between the events and the extant. Extant means that those, those manuscripts are still available today. Um, the confirmation of the gospel accounts by historians and archaeological findings ensure a reliable testimony from which a modern medical interpretation of Jesus' death may be made. Okay? So let's get to Passion Week and kind of the, the whole medical issues that surround Passion Week. Gethsemane. At the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, apparently knowing that the time of his death was near, and we've just read it, he knew the, the Old Testament, he was, knew what he was facing, and my goodness, can you imagine? Um, suffered great mental, ang- mental anguish, and as described by the physician Luke, his sweat became like blood. Now, not many of us have seen bloody sweat. I can't say that any time in my medical career I've seen that. But Dr. Edwards says, although this is a very rare phenomenon, bloody sweat, hematidrosis and hemohydrosis may occur in highly emotional states or in persons with bleeding disorders. As a result of hemorrhage into the sweat glands, the skin becomes fragile and tender. So it does back up Luke's account that bloody sweat can occur. And was there a a large amount of emotion and stress on Jesus? We We can't imagine. So that's step one of Passion Week with kind of the suffering already that was there. And there was the mental anguish that was occurring and then the bloody sweat where actually the skin became tender. So then he had a Jewish trial, right? He was arrested at Gethsemane. Judas um, identified him. He was uh, taken to Annas and then to Caiaphas, the high priest, found guilty of blasphemy, and the guards blindfolded Jesus, spat on him, and struck him with their fists. And, you know, I'm grateful that I don't think I've ever been struck with a fist. I'm grateful for that, you know, that I was... Never. And so can you imagine being blindfolded and not knowing where that's coming from? You know, boxing used to be big in the, in the days when, when we were in high school, and that's where some of the troubled kids kind of got involved with boxing. And, and we used to watch boxing growing up. Sugar Ray Leonard was one of those that was in the Olympics. And We've kind of gotten away from boxing these days because it's, it's a hard to have a sport where you intend to give a concussion to the other person. Now, football, you might say, but it's, it's, that's not the intent. So can you imagine what that's like and how 
the temple guards were probably really going after Jesus because they said, oh, you're a king. Why don't you prophesy who's hitting you right now when you're blindfolded? So again, bloody, you know, bloody sweat, fragile skin in the garden and getting hit blindfolded at the Jewish trial. Then there was a trial, obviously, um, before Pilate. And this is what is reviewed also in the article. Pilate found no basis uh, for a legal charge against Jesus, but the people demanded crucifixion. And Pilate finally granted their demand and handed over Jesus to be flogged and scourged and then crucified. And flogging, as I try to get these terms straight, I think flogging is the beating part of, and the scourging is more where the and we'll get into that where the, the whipping and kind of the tearing of the flesh that is associated with that. So here it is. This is kind of the illustration of the flogging and the scourging. And if you remember the Passion of the Christ, whew, it was a, it's a big scene there. So if you kind of look here, um, the usual instrument was a short whip called the flagrum with several... Uh, single or braided uh, leather thongs of variable length, small iron bowls, balls, or sh uh, sharp pieces of sheep bones were tied at interval. And so that's what you're looking at right here. There's the kind of the wooden handle. Here's the leather uh, um, strips that were had the, this is metal balls at the end, and then there was the sheep bone here. And then it talks about uh, the man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied to the upright post. Uh, the back, buttocks, and legs were flogged um, either by two soldiers or lictors or by one who alternated uh, positions. So there's the, the flog, um, the, the, the flagrum for the scourging. Here's the position of the victim. And then if you're looking here, here's one soldier and here's another. And then this is the top view of Jesus here. It's a little hard to see. But then, then the scourging came from the side then. And that's where the whipping came with um, the balls and the sheep, sheep's bone there. The severity of the scourging depended on the disposition of the lictors and was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. And I don't know if you remember the Passion of the Christ, but they showed one of the lictors, one of the guys doing the scourging, was totally exhausted with that. And that was well done by Mel Gibson, I think. It just said, here's a guy that's doing the whipping, and it totally wore him out. So here's the medical aspects, then, of the scourging. As the Roman soldiers repetitively struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions. Contusions are bruises. And the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations or the cuts would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. And, you know, was Jesus the first one of the three to die on the cross? I, 
I don't know that we've actually ever proven that, but I, I think probably he was. Probably on the basis of what Dr. Edwards says here is he got even more than the other two um, um, victims that were being crucified that day. So I like to think, and you brought it out, Sam, well, in this uh, Isaiah 53, uh, 5 verse. This is the King James Version. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And again, so bruised would be the metal balls. The chastising of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we have been healed. Are you going to remember that picture? The stripes from the scourging. That's, that's it. And the King James Version, I think, got it right. Carrying the cross. Now, it, it, is, it was customary for the condemned man to carry his own cross from the flogging uh, post to the site of crucifixion outside the city walls. Since the weight of the entire cross was probably well over 300 pounds, only the crossbar was carried. The patibulum weighed about 75 to 125 pounds, placed across the, the back of the victim's neck and was balanced between his shoulders. Now, you might say, but the Bible says a cross, and I, I still think of it as a cross, even though Dr. Edwards says it's the crossbar, so that, that's okay, you know, I... The point is, it was a heavy burden to bear on someone that had just gone through the scourging. And you can understand why he was too weakened to carry that. Nails in the wrist. And this is, a, this is rugged. And this was rugged, I, I remember it well, in the Passion of the Christ. With arms outstretched, but not taut, in other words, the elbows were still flexed somewhat, the wrists were nailed to the patibulum. It has been shown that the ligaments and bones of the wrist can support the weight of a body hanging from them, but the palms cannot. Accordingly, the iron spikes probably were driven between the radius. The radius, as you know, is the forearm bone, and it ends at the wrist, and the carpals, which are the, bone, the eight bones of the wrist. And again, the nail probably went on the near end or near side of the ligament that goes across. So that is illustrated right here. It's hard to see. There's the nail, probably five to seven inches long. So it probably looks something like that. If you can imagine, I can't imagine. So... There's the nail. Here's the wrist. And again, this is the, not the greatest illustration, but this is where, this is where the um, transverse carpal ligament goes across, this tough ligament that goes across the uh, wrist bone on the flexor surface of the wrist, where the wrist flexes. And then there's the arteries that go through there. And then this is the median nerve. And then this is the cross-sectional view of the nail, and this, these are the carpal bones in cross-section, and it shows the arteries, and then the, the uh, median nerve goes through there as well. And it does say, um, the driven nail would crush or sever the rather large sensory motor median nerve, 
and the stimulated nerve would produce excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms. Has anybody ever hit their funny bone? You want to feel what a nerve feels like? Just bend your elbow to about 90 degrees. It's on the inner side. You'll feel the bone there. And then right in that groove right there, that's the ulnar nerve. And that's the one that goes to your little finger. But that's what a nerve feels like, all right? Anybody want to drive a six-inch nail through that nerve and feel what it feels like? Can you imagine? You hit your funny bone. And so this was going into the wrist and probably either totally severed the median nerve or at least uh, damaged it. So here's a, a, what's an actual view of an MRI scan of the wrist. And, so what you're, and that's a cross-sectional view. So these are the carpal bones here and the, the bones of the wrist. These are the tendons, are the flexor tendons then on the flexor surface of the wrist and then Here's the median nerve right in the middle here, so you can imagine that a nail probably did hit that median nerve as well. So you're saying, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say to Thomas, stretch out your hands and put your hand into my hand? And you're saying, what, are you telling me that this is wrist now? Because it had to be in the wrist because that was strong. That ligament was strong enough to hold you. But if you put a nail in the hand, it would probably rip out because it wouldn't support the whole weight of the body. Um, and so here's how Dr. Edwards answers that. Although scriptural references are made to nails in the hand, these are not at odds with the archaeological evidence of wrist wounds. Since the ancients customarily considered the wrist to be a part of the hand, okay? And that Greek word is chair, chair. Say uh, with, confidently and everyone will believe you. Yes, okay. <laughs> and there's no Greek words for the wrist. It was, the wrist was considered part of the hand. So you think about lifting holy hands in prayer, it's not just doing this, okay? <laughs> Guess what? The wrist and the arms go up with holy hands in prayer. So, again, just thinking, just understanding a little bit, again, remembering Jesus' death and the nails, uh, and, it's, and still I say the nails are in the hands. Now, uh, I did this PowerPoint presentation about four years ago, and we had a hand surgeon working there, and he came to this church, and I knew he was a Christian. So I said... Uh, Dr. Bruno, give me your perspective from a hand surgeon perspective on nails through the wrist that probably went right through the median nerve. And here's what he said. As a hand surgeon, I'm required to perform procedures on the hand. During surgery, the nerve is carefully identified, and that would probably mainly be the median nerve at the wrist, could be also the ulnar nerve kept moist with saline irrigation and gently retracted with smooth, rounded instruments. In other words, they're very careful of the nerve and doing carpal tunnel release, you know, to, for carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, they have to be very careful about that. Along with regular irrigation, the gentle retraction pressure is released every few minutes so the nerve doesn't get injured. 
The surgeon is aware that even a small cut into the nerve or scar formation can result in a lifetime of disabling pain. So even if you just nick it, it still can give you pain. Like just nicking, not a nail going through it. Of all the elements, this is Dr. Bruno's conclusion, of all the elements of the crucifixion, it is the nailing of the wrist to the cross that is incomprehensible to a living person. Now, this is from what Ray Boltz, and we know that Ray Boltz's situation may not be the best right now, but he wrote this, this song, and it was called The Hammer. And, it, and he says, who nailed him there? Uh, this is kind of as someone observing Jesus being nailed to the cross. Who nailed him there? This child of peace and mercy. Who nailed him there? Come and face me like a man. I, I can't see an innocent man have nails uh, driven through his, his wrists or his hands. Who nailed him there? Then the crowd began to mock me, and I, and I cried, Oh, my God, I just don't understand. And then I turned and saw the hammer in my hand. Nails in the feet. The, the feet had to be flexed to be able to get flat with the, the stipes, which was the upright uh, post that the patibulum was placed on. And so you can see where the nail probably went through the, the midfoot region. And that is, these are the metatarsals, and this, these are the tarsals, so it probably went right through there. Um, and obviously was pretty painful also. And so again, um, here's where the nails and everything kind of come together as you see someone suffering on the cross with the major pathophysiologic effect of crucifixion being the excruciating pain. Um, even uh, beyond that was a marked interference with normal breathing, respiration, particularly exaltation. The weight of the body pulling on the outstretched arms and shoulders would tend to fix the chest and the intercostal muscles in the inhalation state and thereby, thereby hinder passive exhalation. Okay? So think about breathing. What's the active part? The active part is breathing in, right? Your ribs go up, your diaphragm goes down, it's a negative pressure, and the air goes in. And then everything relaxes, and you exhale as it, the ribs go back down. So what he's saying here is that the chest in this position is stuck in the inhalation position. Okay? And breathing out is the problem. So to breathe out, they had... Jesus on the cross had to pull up with his hands and push up with his feet to get the air out. And so, obviously, breathing became very difficult. So it says, adequate exhalation required lifting the body by pushing up on the feet and flexing the elbows and shoulders, producing searing pain in the feet and hand with the scourge back scraping against the stipes. The actual causes of death by crucifixion were probably the hypovolemic shock, the blood loss, and exhaustion. In other words, you, you just couldn't keep doing this, and so you'd stop breathing, and that would ensure your death and, as well. Okay? 
And so interesting what um, Dr. Edwards says is death by crucifixion was, in every sense of the word, excruciating, which is the Latin excruciatus, or, or out of the cross. The spear wound into the chest, and, and again, as you read in the, in the Gospel of John, it describes the piercing of Jesus' side and the emphasis of sudden flow of blood and water. And so he kind of addresses that as to what that is and, you know, does the order make a difference here? And so there, was some, there has been some skepticism in accepting John's description um, uh, with the difficulty in explaining with medical accuracy the flow of both blood and water. However, in the Greek, the order of the words generally denoted prominence, prominence and not necessarily a, a specific order or time sequence. Therefore, it seems like John was emphasizing the prominence of the blood rather than its appearance preceding the water, which probably represented serous pleural and pericardial fluid and would have preceded the flow of blood and been smaller in volume than the blood. We'll try to go through that a little bit, okay? So, so here is where the spear went, probably into the right side of the heart. And this is the cross section. Well, that, actually, this is more of a what's called a coronal view where you're cutting it this way and looking in at the sl uh, sliced trash uh, chest kind of up and down. So here's the heart here, and around the heart is a sac uh, that's called the pericardium. And probably what did happen as the heart was beginning to fail here and work from the, the hypovolemic shock is that fluid um, uh, accumulated around the heart, and that fluid was more like plasma without the red blood cells, so it looked more like water. So when the spear goes in, it would probably cut through the, the pericardium and the effusion or the fluid around the heart, which is the water part, and then go into the heart, which was the blood part. And so John described it as blood and water, even though the water from around the heart probably came out first, but the blood was more significant to John. Does that make sense? So we'll take a look at just a CT scan then of what a pericardial effusion looks like. Here's the heart. This is the sac around the heart with fluid, and that's the pericardial effusion there and there also. So again, spear went into the right side, went through the pericardial effusion. That was the water, and then into the heart, which was the blood. So conclusions here from Dr. Edwards. Clearly, the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust into his right ribs probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium, the lining around the heart and the heart, and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge, okay? So Jesus died on the cross because in order to have a risen Savior, you first must have a dead Savior. That's right. That was Friday. Sunday's coming, right? All right.
I hit the right button. Here we go. So he became sin, kind of this great exchange. And behold, our God said, who has felt the nails upon his hands? And not only that, the nails on his hands meant that he was bearing all the guilt of sinful man. And that's illustrated again. This is one of Pastor Jeff's very good verses that he shares. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So Jesus never lied, right? But he became all the lies, the deception, the Ooh, the nastiest things that you could say about some, all the gossip, all the horrible things. He became that from all times on the cross. He never stole anything. He became robbery, stealing. He became what, oh, just the horrible things. He never murdered anybody. But he became all the murders of all time throughout all the world on the cross. He never committed a sexual sin, but he became sexual sin. He became sex outside of marriage. He became adultery. I hate to even say it. He became rape. You don't. How can you even say that in the same same sentence as Jesus? He became that. Right? Isn't that what Second Corinthians five twenty one is telling us? He became that sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. All our sin went on Jesus, and his righteousness came to us. Wow, what a message. And here it is. Uh, Sam went through this about how the Lord, and he said it yesterday in his sermon. He called it propitiation, right? God was pleased, at, and pleased is a hard word. He, he wasn't pleased to see his son suffer, but yet he was satisfied with the sacrifice for sin because it was a perfect sacrifice. Philippians 2.8, and being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And you know, and here it is, 1 Corinthians 1.18, and there's a lot of people out there where the message of the cross is foolishness, and they're perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We want that power of God. I always said to our Sunday school class, Christianity is an exclusive club. It's exclusive. But we want everybody in it, right? We want everybody in that exclusive club, all right? And then Hebrews 12, 2, fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the uh, joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, sat down at the right hand of God. Okay? So what does the cross mean to you? Let me just share from my childhood King James Version Bible, right in front, in the front cover here, August 2nd, 1965. It's only 58 years ago. Tonight at Bible camp, I accepted Jesus into my heart, okay? And it's written in here in the King James Version, so it, it must have been true. I remember that <laughs> night. 
I remember that night praying with the camp counselor. Saying, and I was going, you know, my, I'm, t- I'm just not worthy of this. And it, it, she's going, okay, Jesus died to forgive your sins. All you got to do is accept that. Okay? Now, where are you at? What's the cross mean to you? Some of the, you, you know, Sam put out a survey. Was that last, just a little over a year, right out about a year ago. And put on there, are you 100% sure that you're saved? And I'm kind of going, yeah, I'm 100% sure that I'm saved. Well, maybe it's because I accepted the Lord 58 years ago, and I'm so far ahead of you guys (laughs) that I know I'm going to heaven. No, I know I'm going to heaven because I accepted the Lord, and I'm 100% sure of that. We want you guys, everybody here should be sure of that tonight, right? That's what the cross did for you. Do you think the thief on the cross hanging by Jesus who said, Jesus, remember me when you get to your, you know, um, remember me when you get to your kingdom, and he said, today you will be with me in paradise? That was, that was it, you know? By golly, that guy was there. Yeah. It wasn't 58 years. It was an hour or two, probably, <laughs> and he was there. So we're hoping that... That's our prayer. It's a powerful, the crucifixion is powerful, and I hope that we never forget it. Andrew did a great job with communion yesterday. It was just a wonderful presentation of the gospel and how not to forget Jesus' death on the cross. And I hope that that's what we, that this article helps you do. And uh, Lord bless you uh, for this. Uh, You know what? And the fact that you guys are here tonight, it's a, I, I give you credit, it's a Monday night. You're here. You could be a, at the bar getting ready for the NCAA the championship game, but I you're not. I almost forgot, Jim. That's, that's a, I, I know. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> running over. <laughs> yeah, but, it's, but it's, I, it's San Diego State and you can, I mean, anyway, but you're here, but be confident that you're going to, I want you to be 100% sure you're going to heaven, okay? Sam. What do we do with that, <laughs> you know? Um, I think there's a couple different ways that we're going to respond. Um, the first is probably with a, a weight, a W-E-I-G-H-T, not a W-A-I-T, a weight, a heaviness, right? Um, to consider that Jesus did that for you and for me. That it was my sin and your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. To be offered, excuse me, to be offered this gift that in a million years we could never dream of repaying. Um, I hope provides a weight. Almost an uneasiness tonight. We don't want to stay in that. But at least to dwell there for a moment, I think, is okay. Um, Because this is a free gift of forgiveness and salvation that has been offered to the entire world. But it's a gift that remains unopened by so many people. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that not everybody who walked in that door tonight has believed in Jesus has believed that when he died on the cross, he paid for your sin. We're saved by placing our faith 
in what Christ has done. We're not saved by being good people. We're not saved by going to church. We're not saved by taking communion. Right? If we think we can be saved by something that we do, we're looking at the cross and saying, it's not enough. Jesus didn't do enough. He didn't bleed enough. I've got to do more. No, when Jesus said it's finished, the debt of your sin was paid in full. But that's a gift that we have to receive by faith. If you walked in the door tonight and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, you've got to talk to somebody tonight. Talk to your friend, talk to your leader, talk to me, talk to Brian, talk to Bianca, talk to somebody because it is the most important decision you can make. Eternity is weighing in the balance. So I hope that we respond with a weightiness, but I also hope that we can respond with worship. Now, there's a lot of different ways we can worship, but I'm convinced that singing is one of the best. And um, you know, as Bobby and Sarah make their way up to the front, I, I, I feel like the only way for us to respond to what we heard tonight is just by singing a song together. Um, and maybe that means you stand, maybe that means you sit, maybe that means you sing, maybe that means you think, maybe it means that you just write some thoughts down on your handout. Um, we want to leave space for you to respond in how you want to respond. Um, but I love the words of the song that we're about to sing, which simply just say thank you to Jesus for going through that for us. Let me pray. Uh, Father, what a powerful text, a powerful night, a, a sobering night to consider what Jesus went through for us, to consider that we were the ones holding the hammer, that it was our sin that nailed him to the cross. It's easy for us to take for granted something we've heard maybe over and over again, um, but may we never take this for granted. Um, may we daily remember what Christ has done on our behalf, and may that change every moment of every day of our life. So as we have a moment to sing together and just reflect, um, may these words go deep into our heart tonight. In Jesus' name.